You're listening to Coming of Cage, a Nicolas Cage podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Coming of Cage podcast. I am your host, Derek, and I've got your other host, Ryan, here with me. Hello. Hello. And we are here to talk to you about the 2002 Oscar-winning film adaptation, starring, of course, Nicolas Cage, as well as several other notable actors like Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, and Tilda Swinton. The movie is directed by Spike Jones. Written by Charlie Kaufman, which is important for this particular film. If you don't know anything about the Coming of Cage podcast, we review Nicolas Cage movies. We spin a wheel and it picks whatever movie we're going to talk about next. And we got Adaptation. That's right. That's right. So what is Adaptation? According to IMDb, Adaptation is about a lovelorn screenwriter who becomes desperate as he tries and fails to adopt The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean for the screen. That was a, a novel based off of a New Yorker article. So what we do here is Ryan has taken meticulous notes and he is going to walk us through said notes and then we will talk about the film as we go. That's right. And just out of the gate, this one is probably the most meta film that we've reviewed. I feel like possibly like one of the most meta movies I've ever seen. Yeah. How do you feel about that? that oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely, I mean, unbearable weight of massive talent is fairly yeah that's as true. well but this is meta in a different way uh very you know being john malkovich which of course there's a direct connection to here uh with charlie kaufman having written both films um and there's even some behind the scenes clips. directing both films right yep also a direct connection there so so yeah adaptation I mean, I, so did you know anything about this movie going into it I knew that there was more than one Nick Cage character in it. Mm -hmm. That was basically it. Okay. And I'm a fan of uh, being John Malkovich. I watched it. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan. I've I've seen it several times, and that's more than probably most people. I feel like most people have either never seen it or seen it once. Um, so I was actually surprised that being John Malkovich was in this movie, uh, and also the, the relation to it. Sure. And then I had managed to not watch it all these years. Yeah, this this movie was always on my list of like, hey, I should probably watch that. And so like, you know, the title and the poster, right? You know, the potted plant that's broken and everything with Nick Cage's face as the pot. Like I, I all of that was ingrained in my head, but I knew like nothing about right. this movie. I didn't know that he played multiple characters. So that was a really fun surprise. Oh yeah, that would have been a big surprise then. Yeah, that was great cuz I've tried really hard since we started the show to like stop researching his old movies. So I can go in as fresh as possible. Right. Um, so that was fun. That was a, a nice surprise. If this movie doesn't tell you what it is, like what you you get that it's a, about a screenwriter writing, trying to adapt a book. But really, it's it's a lot more than that. It's it's basically self-referential through the whole movie. But you mm -hmm. don't really realize that until like half an hour in um so yeah it's a weird it's a weird one but anyway right at the beginning you're getting a nick cage voiceover which is a strong start for any movie mm -hmm. and he's he's it's not his normal voice it's like a octave higher than his normal voice um and then you you get you it's like over black it's just like that the title screen and all the opening credits are just a black void with like 
small right white writing very plain it's like you're looking into a void and that's by definition you'll you find out later mm-hmm. you know that's part of his like artistic vision but um so yeah then when it finally pops out of this void you're on the set of being john malkovich with a bunch of dudes and and women walking around in john malkovich masks which if you haven't seen the movie there's a whole long scene where everybody is john malkovich and they're all it's like you know women wearing dresses wearing john malkovich masks and you know big burly guys wearing john malkovich masks and you know everybody in between um and yeah this was this scene was a part it it basically to set up that charlie wrote john malkovich being john malkovich right um and you yeah you get a scene from john malkovich you know talking about how we got to get this in you know a short time because these masks are hot as hell and good on him for looking out for all these extras he's a, you know i don't want to get hung up on, on that part of the movie but i love john malkovich he's such an interesting guy i just want to listen is. to him talk yeah he's great and having him and nick cage in a movie is kind of a dream of mine but this is not the way that i expected it to be yeah yeah i'm not uh. sure it quite counts and I feel like somewhere there's like hundreds of those John Malkovich masks just floating around in a warehouse. Or anyway. like one person ended up with all of them. <laughs> yeah, they own all of them. <laughs> the prop master for that movie just has boxes of John Malkovich masks. Um, so we get our first look at, at Nick Cage's character, one of his characters, Charlie Kaufman, who has like very th- like thinning hair. It's v- hair that's very different than Nick Cage's natural hair. Yes. So it was a cool, you know, it was probably really good for him as an actor to get into character because when he has this hair on, it's such a different look for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like a thinning, like kind of curly hair. I don't really know how to redhead. It was, it was okay. I was going to ask. He's like, so I'm kind of colorblind. So it looked like he was a redhead to me, but I wasn't yeah, sure. Not like a deep red, but like, okay. uh, you know, like, like a blondish red, I think. Yeah, it was, it really caught me off guard. Cause like, I'm not used to seeing him change his physical appearance a whole lot for a role other than like maybe facial hair right and that was a big change i mean we'll probably touch on this several times throughout the whole movie but it was actually like hard for me to see nick cage like his normal acting self in this Mm -hmm. because he did a really good job of changing his mannerisms his like he had like his eyebrows furrowed like a lot of the movie to like like he's constantly has this weight on his shoulders um he's slouching a lot of the movie it's just he did a really good job and that that combined with the hair really like made you forget that this is nick cage there's a couple scenes when he gets cagey but really it's it's not a super cagey movie not in a stereotypical sense no he really does disappear into both of these roles and because they are you know, Donald and Charlie are different people and they have different tones to them. Their voices are different. Their moods and attitudes are different. And they're just, it's subtle, but neither of them are Nick. But they're twins. So they look almost identical. Right. It was, it was eerie at times, yeah. I think. Yeah. So then after the John Malkovich scene, we get this really weird scene of like the history of the earth essentially <laughs> yeah um you know and I, and I wrote down evolution as my note on it but it really wasn't just evolution i think that's where the focus was but there was a lot of stuff in there that wasn't really related to evolution right but it definitely was trying there's a 
you know, the movie is called Adaptation and evolution is a fairly heavy theme throughout the movie. There's lots of Charles Darwin references and things like that. But adaptation and evolution are two different things. So that kind of threw me for a loop. Um, you know, it's like they were using them interchangeably, but they're really not. I think they were using them interchangeably. I do yeah. think that because, you know, it and it's supposed to show the passage of time. And like, you know, he, it gets very meta later on when he's like talking about how to make that scene that we've already watched earlier yeah. in the movie. Uh, but I do think that they are using them interchangeably because of the focus on Darwin. They keep going back to he's reading Darwin at some point. Like they just keep focusing on that. I'm not entirely sure if like maybe just they think the title for the film just wasn't going to work calling it evolution. Right. Because there was already that comedy evolution. Yeah, That was what year did that come out? That was, I was think like pretty, pretty close to that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're released close to each other for sure. But you know, the one with Duchovny and Julianne yeah, Moore. 2001. 2001. It was yeah, evolution. So, so, so maybe they were going to call this evolution and then like six months before they're ready to lock the title, that movie comes out and they're like, shit. <laughs> yeah exactly i mean honestly that is probably accurate um but yeah of course like he's also he's adapting something right as a writer like his job is to in this particular case right he's adapting a book which and then at the same time so susan orlean who's meryl streep's character she has to adapt her own new yorker article into a novel after adapting john laroche's chris cooper's character his story into like it's all so it's like basically a series of adaptations which it is is, but then they again you know they they try and push that with evolution and you know i don't know i you you could make an argument that they're the same thing with different time periods you know different because adaptation is more like a short term and evolution is like a longer term more permanent that i so you could make some argument for that but it was a it was a weird you thing to do that interchangeably. I, I get the point that it was like they were adapting screenplays and there's a lot of uses of the word play play on the word of adaptation, you know. Mm-hmm. And evolution wouldn't have fit as well no. into those. But you do evolve as a person as you as you age, and you can evolve evolve can also mean change in, in the sense of like people, mm-hmm. you know, in their lifetime. So I don't know. It could have worked either way. Anyway. I, it was a weird way to kick off the movie. These like Three you watch a, a fox get like completely uh, go, go from like yeah. dying to like be completely being rotted away and being a skeleton That's and then gross. you get a random birth scene like straight into the woman's vagina while yeah. a baby's baby just rips it apart which was really pleasant was that supposed to be charlie being born is that what we were supposed to i don't think so, so just no baby? i think it was like just showing like how life moves you know throughout the world but yeah okay. it was as someone that doesn't ever want kids and isn't, you know, the world's biggest fan of lots of kids, uh, <laughs> that was a weird scene for me to just sit there and watch out of nowhere. Not expected. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I think the the next scene is you see like a van running down the street and then taking like a sharp right Batman turn, like a quick, you know, like drift turn in a van. Um, and it shows inside the van and you see Charles Darwin's book or one of his books, I'm not sure how many he wrote, but, um, you know, a a book by Charles Darwin uh, on the ground. So that's kind of the start of, well, not the start, I guess the big montage of, you know, 
evolution things was the start but it's the connection see... it's bringing the montage right. into the narrative yes yeah. and there's plenty of uh that throughout the movie a little heavy-handed um but yeah orchid thief is my next note i think it's just a reference to that's the book that they're that he's getting ready to adapt oh yes. no actually that was a note because they are literally thieving orchids in oh, that well, scene yeah i mean the title is is literal Yes, it, yeah. it, they they it shows um, this white guy and three Native Americans going out into the swamps uh, and finding a flower called the ghost orchid and basically poaching it. I, if if that's what it's called for plants, I'm assuming it is or so, something along those lines. Where they they're taking it alive. Yes, yeah, it's. A, I'm sure it's. Yeah, they take a whole bunch of these rare orchids and um yeah you get i think is this where you get the scene with this the trooper mm -hmm. which was a really good scene actually it really it does a good job of setting up the character what was that guy's name laroche laroche yeah. it was a really good scene for setting up laroche laroche is the white guy that's with these uh native american men and uh he chris cooper's character yes chris cooper's character's character and he uh they get and they're unloading all these uh orchids and putting them into one of the vehicles and this like park ranger pulls up and uh they laroche is like being very cooperative mm -hmm. with the, the trooper and through his dialogue he's basically setting up that this was all planned that if a white person had done this then he could be arrested because these are protected species. And, uh, you know, but because it's Native Americans, they have additional rights relating to collection of uh, flora and fauna, that kind of thing. And that there's a, he references a trial that was you know, similar to this situation where the Native American person got off. Uh, they collected something. And had gotten off with collecting it, even though it was a federal crime because of their heritage. And it's a very, it, it sets up the character. I don't want to go too long with it, but it sets yeah. up the character that he's smarter than he looks. And, and he's very charismatic. Very charismatic. Yes. That's something that's a theme throughout the film. But yeah, he, he's, he, he trips up this, <laughs> this park this ranger. Park ranger. <laughs> yeah. And he has no idea how to respond, and it's a whole thing. But uh, yeah, it's a good job. It's a good way of setting up that character for sure. And it's kind of the first moments for that character. It wasn't what I was expecting at all. Um, Same, that, yeah. That whole scene, like it totally changed my like, you know, preconceived notions of of La Roche immediately. Um, I found it fascinating. Next thing you know, you know, there's there's a couple more cars and dozens of you know rangers and officers, and they're like they're going through, and he and LaRoche is like explaining what every single plant yeah, is. Yeah, like the scientific and, name, you know, the Latin names. Because like I think and and this is planting the, the seed, no pun intended, that he also likes people to know how smart he is. That right. you know, he believes he's the smartest person in the room, but he also wants you to know that he believes he's the smartest. No, he person believes in the room. he's the smartest person in the world. Well, that I too. mean, he yeah. he's just very full of himself as far as intelligence. And he's not stupid. No, but no. he, you know, he yeah, he definitely likes to flaunt his intelligence and have people recognize it mm -hmm. because it's kind of uh, anti antithetical to his what you would assume from the character, right? Yeah, I, you know, you kind of get into that later, but he's like missing his teeth and he dresses very much like a kind of a southern redneck type of 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, he's not what you would expect. You wouldn't expect somebody like that to be a very, very intelligent, you know, as far as science and things like that. Well, you know what so. they say? They say, don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. And the whole right. movie is about a book. Yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah. I'm sure I, I, I'm sure that's part like that. They think that's very clever, I'm sure. Yeah, this is one of those movies where I kind of feel stupid after I watch it because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that they, a lot of seeds they planted that maybe I'm not smart enough to pick up on. This discussion will probably help some of that, but, um, you know, do you get that kind of feeling too? With these kind of art, it almost felt like kind of an artsy movie where it's meant to be like a much deeper line uh, or a much, much more smart movie. It, it certainly has happened to me before. Not not with this movie. This movie is one of like this is my kind of film. But other movies like anything by David Lynch, for example, yeah. <laughs> um, kind of goes over my head. Uh, but this one, like this, is in my wheelhouse. This is what I look for. This is my kind of film. But I mean, Mandy, I still don't understand Mandy. Well, when when, <laughs> when a movie is so self-referential and uh, meta like this, that's when it's not my wheelhouse. It's more like. I'm holding on for dear life, trying to hope that I'm smart enough to understand what they're trying to accomplish with the end of the movie. And I think I picked up on a lot of it, but there's probably a lot I missed as well. And, you know, I'm not necessarily itching for a rewatch at this point, but, you know, yeah, maybe I mean, someday. And that's the thing, right? You you and I have each seen it one time, 20 years after it came out. Right. Right. I've never read the book. I assume you've never read the book. Right. Right. So we're not going to catch everything on that first viewing. Yeah. Um, so then we get introduced to uh, double Nick Cage, and <laughs> I'll probably have other notes about this. But at first, I wasn't sure if like this was an imaginary. Yes. Like, okay, so I'm not I'm not the only one on that. That's yeah. Good. Well, because he's got uh, the it, voiceover and stuff, so I thought maybe he was talking to himself. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of set up in a way because for the first like good portion of the movie, you only see him talking to his twin brother in the in this house that they live in and that's it you never see him outside the house so you you aren't sure if this is a real character or if it's just like a a made up in his mind to help him like it's because the character kind of you see you develop through the movie that his character is more confident Mm -hmm. um not as smart necessarily um i wouldn't say not as smart he's not as like learned in the screenwriting industry right that's fair like you know because charlie is painted and, you know, I, I think this is kind of said even outright in the film in a way. He's very pretentious when it comes to the art of screenwriting. Right. Right. Donald's not like that. Donald wants to get into it. That's not his thing. And so he's just coming into it like, you know, with all this enthusiasm and no pretension around it. And, you know, he has no problem with the self-help books and all those different types of things. So I don't know that it's an intelligence factor as much as Charlie is just pretentious. Right. He's up on his high horse about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that Nicolas Cage is only credited as Charlie Kaufman on IMDb too, but I just noticed that. Interesting. Um well supposedly there's a shot where you see um Donald behind him or something, and supposedly in one shot it is the actual Charlie Kaufman in like a reflection or something like that. I don't know. I'd have to rewatch it to see if I could catch it, but weird. Yeah. So uh, my next note is that I identify with his overthinking. There's a lot of <laughs> scenes in this movie where it's like him trying to figure out what the screenplay is going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like when he's, but I don't think that's actually one of the scenes I was talking about. There's, I think there's a lot of scenes with women 
specifically there's like one scene with a woman where he's like should i kiss her should i not kiss her you know is this you know he's going through all these different scenarios and the possible outcomes in his head and honestly like it's probably pretty sad but i have that i have, I do that really sure. badly and it, like this is the first movie i've seen where it feels almost like that's an a thing that is recognized that's not really something that people talk about that much mm-hmm. um and, and you don't really see it this way so that was interesting to me uh and yeah i definitely i'm probably not as bad as he is because the way they have it portrayed he's o- over the top on a lot of this stuff of the extreme end and i'm not that bad but i am you know not too far off i think i think you know we, we watch his journey right how he adapts throughout the film and at the beginning it is like literally holding him back and locking him down and impacting his life in a negative way. He has no action, right? Uh, there's no, there's a, there's a term agency, right? Where it's just, it's, it's all in his head and he talks himself out of everything. Yeah. Right. Whereas like you've done stuff, you might've talked yourself out of some things maybe. Right. But I've also watched you do some really cool That's true. things that, you know, take risk and take ingenuity and creativity, right. That someone has to, move beyond the thought process and at the beginning of the movie he can't do it he is incapable of that's doing that's true it. and i guess we haven't really mentioned like the overall plot at this point but essentially where you're at at this point in the movie is charlie kaufman gets hired to write uh the uh, the screen adaptation of um the orchid thief mm-hmm which is a book that's written by Meryl Streep's character, Susan Orlean. And she wrote an article for the New Yorker that got put made into this novel that he's adapting a screenwriter. So the way this movie is kind of set up is that you're seeing Charlie going through this. The way the movie set up at this point is that you're it's seeing so Charlie go through the process of trying to adapt this, but then it's doing kind of flashbacks to that. You don't know her flashbacks because it's, you know, it's not really uh, in your face. You figure it out as time goes on. Of uh, Susan Orlean meeting this character that's the main the main character of the Orchid Thief, um, and kind of doing the story of the book. You're kind of seeing that come through, uh, and with interjected with uh, Charlie Kaufman's trying to adapt the screenplay in the future, um, and they, it kind of meets up somewhere in the middle, but. Have you ever heard of a novel called House of Leaves? No. Okay. House of Leaves. This reminds me of House of Leaves. So anybody out there who, if you liked adaptation, go read House of Leaves. If you've read House of Leaves, this movie has a lot of the narrative meta complexities to it. Right. And I just, oh, I loved it. I love that so much. Right. It's a movie about a guy who's trying to write a screenplay about a book that's about a New Yorker article that's about a woman who reads <laughs> an orchid. It's just like, it just keeps going right. more and more levels. It's, just, it's fascinating to me. It's interesting for sure. Uh, my next note is Orcus means testicles. They say that at one point in the movie. I didn't fact I check. Was, so I, I didn't guess. either. But I just thought that was funny. <laughs> Um, so it's, so during one of these flashbacks, it shows uh, Susan going to the nursery. So the point, so the actual orchid thief plot line, the guy is having these Native Americans collect these ghost orchids mm-hmm. and because they're going to take it to a nursery and they can actually keep them and nurse them back to health. He's just kind of supervised and use the like 
cultivate them essentially and like right. produce more of them. And he's saying that because they're a protected and rare species that he'll be able to, um, you know, get them to people that want them, but also save the species by repopulating. Um, yeah. Like at that point, he sounds like the hero. Right. He right? doesn't sound like he's doing anything bad, you know? Well, he is, he's but he's doing law, it for the right but, reasons. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you're, you're not, you know, you don't know what kind of guy he is at that point, but it sounds like he's not that bad of a guy. He's just kind of skirting the law to try and do the right thing. Um, but anyway, she goes to this nursery and he's not there. And one of the Native American men from that story that he told her is there. And he says this line about, I can see your sadness. It's lovely. Yeah. It's just a weird line. Um, well, later in the movie, it's alluded to the fact that the guy might have been high at the time. Was high at the time, yeah. Right. Um, well, I, I mean, LaRoche doesn't know for certain. He's just, like, assuming. Yeah. But, yeah. Because supposedly, so what the Native Americans do is they crush up parts of the orchids and basically create a drug that they use for some of their rituals. And yes, but we don't know that at this not point. Yet. Yeah, we don't know that yet. That's way later in the movie. Yeah. Because that's a huge plot point later in the movie. It's kind of a big reveal. Well, I mean, that I think we're talking about two different parts, but we'll get so there. We'll get my there. next note is B cam. I feel like there's a point when like they're talking. It's another like I don't know if it's an evolution reference, but basically there's a bee like like a camera on a bee like flying around, pollinating flowers. Oh, I think it's when they're talking about uh pollinate like how they're gonna you know and you see the bees like having sex with the flowers and it's because he's describing it to orlean laroche is describing the pollination like is like the sex dance between the bees yeah it's very uncomfortable and watching the bees like according to what he's saying have sex with the flowers which obviously is not exactly how bees work but um yeah there's like up close shots of like the bees rolling around and flowers and stuff it's very weird very weird but he's talking like uh, part of this goes into how like why the orchids are you know they they're so different there's so many different kinds and like you know there's the ghost orchid is designed in such a way where darwin had theorized some moth that had like an 11 inch tongue or whatever to drink the pollen in this orchid and then you know 50 years later or whatever scientists discover this moth that can do that Um, and so it's playing into the symbiosis between like the insect world and the orchids and how it's like this ecosystem. I don't think it was an 11 inch tongue. That would be a huge tongue on a tiny moth. It was 11. I think it was like 11 centimeters or something. I don't know. Yeah. That would be really weird. Um, Yeah. That would be really weird. Then we get a scene (laughs) of uh, all these like kind of rich hoity toity type people around a table with uh, Susan and they want to hear about this guy and, right. um, you know, about the story. And it's basically all of them just ripping on this dude, making fun of him, uh, making fun of the fact that he's missing his teeth and, you know, what kind of guy he is and just being a being a bunch of assholes, really. And, you know, you feel like they're just r- really just being assholes. They did, a, they did a good job of making, you know, it's easy to assume something about somebody looking at it, but they did a really good job of making these people just seem like absolute dickheads. You know, really, and her feeling uncomfortable. I mean, she's feeling uncomfortable, but she's also, like, still going along going with along it. With it yeah. Right? And it really paints her in this negative light that, for me, doesn't ever leave the character. Because at this point, LaRoche isn't like he's not hurting anybody he's not 
doing anything dumb. He's very like he's he's very meticulous about the way that he's handling these things. And yeah, he's missing some teeth. We don't know why yet, you know, and they're just making fun of him the whole time. It, it was just kind of shitty. Yeah, it was. Um, so earlier in the movie, you got to see LaRoche, or not LaRoche, you got to see Charlie go on a date, what seemed like a date with this woman, Amelia. Right. And she clearly wants it to be something more. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did not. Uh, well, then well, or he did. He did. But he was too scared to like actually take the leap right. to kiss yeah. her and make it something real. Well, then we get this uh, scene of him at a coffee shop or some some sort of coffee shop or, so, or a restaurant. Oh, or the something. diner. Yeah, diner. diner. And yeah. he uh, this waitress approaches him and sees that he's talking that he's reading a book about orchids. And she talks about how she loves orchids and that there's an orchid show and they should go. And so the next scene you see like her and him like at the orchid show having fun. And then you see them like making out in like this private area in the back. And so my next note was dude gets a lot of play. And then and then my next note was boobs. Yeah. Yeah. And then my next note was never mind, it's a dream. And you see him like it like cuts to a cold, like dark room where he's like jerking off to the to the light of his TV, essentially um and that's not the last time that happens it's actually that's the first of many times that happens in the movie so he doesn't actually get a lot of play he just dreams about getting a lot of play well that's the thing right like it shows how in trapped in his own head he is that he has no action on anything he has all these thoughts all these ideas and he doesn't do anything with them initially right right that's his big obstacle uh waitress played by judy greer by the way for those playing at home yeah um so then I, my next note is, is second Nick Cage real? <laughs> and at that point, I, I wasn't still, sure. At, yeah, at this I point, really I still wasn't. was not sure. You're still, he's like laying on the ground a lot. Uh, well, because he, yeah, he had like a back injury or something. Right. So we just keep and seeing so him in these weird positions. Yeah, he just likes pushing himself around with his feet to move around while he's laying on his back on the hardwood floor. I um, like Donald a lot. I'm just going to yeah. say it. I really like Donald. He was yeah. great. And I will say that I... You know, we say a lot about CG in movies, not necessarily on this podcast, maybe more so on Screen Heroes. But, um, you know, this movie, the way that they handled uh, the two Nick Cages, there was never a moment where I was like, that does not look real. It looked really real and really believable the whole time, which was crazy to me because there's been more modern movies where they tried to do that and it's not looked anywhere near that good. And I like I'm very critical of that stuff. So like I'm trying to find a problem with it and I can't. Yeah. The only thing I notice is I and you know I'm not a cinematographer, so I don't know if there's a you know a term for this or whatever. But the, it looked like Charlie had some type of filter on his face that Donald didn't have. And to me, if that existed, maybe it was in my head. It made it seem like Charlie just didn't look as healthy as Donald. You know, Donald was like this happier, brighter kind of person. He had like a glow to his face that Charlie didn't have. And I don't know if that was just in my head or if they did some photography trick. To no, also... I don't think it was in your head because I was watching the Blu-ray version and it you could clearly see in a lot of scenes the like seam for the makeup on Charlie, mm. but you couldn't see it on Donald. So okay. they were definitely like the makeup or lighting was different on either one of them um and this is like but, when like charlie was by himself it's not like when they're sharing the screen right you know i want to be clear that it's like totally separate shots so so then we get 
this is kind of the first moment where you start to see him try and adapt and like take a chance because mm. he goes back to the diner and he tries to impress the same waitress. She's very nice to him. Yes. And like a lot of guys probably do, they assume that that she likes him or like that's a lot of attention, more attention than what guys usually get mm-hmm. uh, or he usually gets. And so he, you know, is kind of infatuated with her and he tries to talk to her more because she's being friendly and starts like trying to surprise her with his orchid knowledge mm-hmm. and really going into it, uh, hitting it hard. And she's you can tell that she's in over her head at this point and she's trying to be nice and smile her way through it. And then he invites her to an orchid show this weekend, trying to relive his masturbation fantasy out of town. Mind you, it's not like this is down the road or something, right? Like, right. This is like a weekend getaway. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, she shoots him down. It's a very awkward scene. Um, but well done is just, yeah, you, they, yeah. you definitely felt really uncomfortable in the scene and you see the girl go over to like her manager or a coworker or something. And they're both like looking at him and it's just very uncomfortable. Yep. Um, yeah, that's like, it's really well done, right? Like Nick is so believable in this role throughout the whole film that like you get, the awkward feelings, the uncomfortable feelings that it's shooting for. Just really well done. Right. I'm, my next note, I had adaptation versus evolution for some reason. I'm not sure what triggered that in this moment. But anyway, uh, so I guess th- then we get a scene. I don't remember what's being filmed, but they're basically on a film set. Uh, Charlie and Donald. And this is where I how my note says uh, they're both on the set. So I guess it's re- he's real. So... Yeah, so I think they're still filming being John Malkovich oh, okay. because like some of the sets looked familiar from from the film, and uh, I think the idea is that like you know his job is done as as the screenwriter. He's on set in case anybody has any questions for him. But like they're making the movie at this point. Yes, and his brother is there um, for some know, reason, <laughs> ask, asking people about his screenplay and you know flirting with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Stuff. Yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who plays a you know person on the set. I forget her character's um, name. So uh, yeah, and the, my next note is brother is a ladies' man, and he said, "My this is a line from the movie. I don't really remember the context, but he says push push in the bush." I don't remember why he says that. It was I think it was at a at the party afterwards or something where he invited okay. Maggie Gyllenhaal to. Oh okay, um, yeah, Caroline is her character's name. Yeah. And then we get a Charlie Darwin, a Charlie, Charlie, Charles Darwin flash. I call him Charlie. You know, we go way back. <laughs> you and Char- Charles, <laughs> Charles Darwin flashback of like an actor pretending to be Charles Darwin and talking about evolution, <laughs> which was weird. I did not have that on my bingo card. There's a lot of stuff I did not have on my bingo card for this movie that, yeah, very weird. That's um, one of the rare scenes in the movie that I'm not sure that that needed scene to be there. Needed to be there. I think yeah. that may have just been extra fluff. At that I feel point. like the director was just like, I've, I have it on my bucket list to put Charles Darwin in a movie. And that's what I'm going to do. That's what that's so. I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at this point, you start to realize that Charlie Kaufman is describing the movie that you're watching. So he, after he gets home from the set and the party, uh, 
he like is in his room alone and he's going through describing what we watched in the beginning of the movie with all the like fox you know uh rotting away and all these different things kind of like the beginning of the earth and the dinosaurs and blah, blah, blah. he's going through and describing all this um and so this is the point where you're like okay i saw that earlier so i know that, that now he now i'm kind of figuring out what this is um so he's then, getting really obsessive about it because you can see that he's like he's desperately trying to cling to a story right because like one of the one of the things that just goes back to like how pretentious he is is when he's meeting with uh valerie which is tilda swinton's character i guess she's like she's not his agent because that's um that's what's his face that's uh oh my god what's his name the guy from office space the guy from office space why am i doing this uh that's gonna drive me absolutely insane ron livingston ron livingston but she's like in charge at the studio she's at the studio she's the one who's hired him to write this screenplay right and he's talking about how like he wants it to be different and about flowers and he doesn't want all the this drama and like characters changing and like all like he's trying to talk about how he wants this to be some like special art project that doesn't follow genre um right there's no guns there's no like chase scenes like it's it's very much supposed to be about the flower that's what he keeps saying it's about the flower but now we're realizing he doesn't know how to make that work (laughs) right he's not known for making that kind of thing work he's known for making these kind of oddball quirky things and so he's starting to spiral at this point like we, we keep seeing him sitting at his typewriter he never he's he's either not typing or he keeps typing like the same opening paragraph over and over right. again. Most of the time he's just recording into a tape recorder his ideas and then listening back to him later. Right. Um. So then in the flashbacks, we are getting throughout this more flashbacks with Susan uh, and LaRoche. Uh, LaRoche trying to, you know, flesh out that story. Um, and I think this is the point when he talks about his mom and what happened mm. with his mom because he references his mom a lot when he's talking to Susan yeah. and she doesn't know what happened and so they start getting closer and closer throughout the movie and she calls him I think one night and is asking what happened with his mom and he just we start to get the sense that Susan might be into him yeah that she's developed this you know interest beyond a professional with him and so uh he just he talks about this you know he was backing out of a driveway with his mom in the back seat and a car comes and just smashes in and it's gruesome i mean yeah she's dead he's like really fucked up his um, uncle is in the back seat he dies too so he kills he, he thinks he's you know it's his fault i mean uh, who knows right but right. his his uncle and mom are dead. He and his wife, his wife was in a coma for three weeks, I think he said. Yeah, and this is how he lost his teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's That was kind of a reveal. Um, so yeah, gruesome car crash was that note. So then you wonder, is he keeping his teeth that way as a constant reminder to himself of what you know he blames himself for? Or can he just not afford it? Because dental service in the United States is pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, you know, it's... Yeah, in the context of the movie, it's kind of, yeah, the way you're talking about it is probably the way it was intended more than anything. He has to carry this reminder with him. Um, or maybe that they're, you know, they really can't do much about it because of how it happened or something. I don't know enough about that kind of thing to be able to tell you. But in sure. any case, yeah, it's implied that 
this is a constant reminder to him of what happened. Um, and yeah, very meta movie is my next note. Apparently, I was just then realizing that it was <laughs> how meta it was. Uh, and then we get another Nick, Ca- Nick Cage sad masturbation fantasy. I don't another remember which one it is. There's was like at one? least three. Was this the one with Susan? Because there, there's there's the one where he's looking at the book in bed and the, she's just got the standard author photo in the right. back sleeve. And it and like turns him on. Jesus. Like, uh, yeah. So uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, like, we're, they're trying to paint Charlie as this very sad, lonely, trapped in his head type character. And I mean, he pulls it off. Yeah, they did that. <laughs> we, there was no argument here. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then he goes in to meet with his uh, manager, yeah. publicist, or so, it's, you know, it's his, it's his agent. His agent. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this guy, you know, right away, they want you to know how big of a douche he is because. Charlie is describing his uh, problems that he's having figuring out the screenplay. And as he's like pouring his heart out, uh, uh, you see uh, this character point to a woman that's walking behind. And so you go, Hey, you see her? I fucked her in the ass last night. And <laughs> then he's like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go on. And then later he's like, I want to fuck her in the ass. Like not even five minutes later to another woman walking by. And so it's just, I don't really know what the point of that character was, uh, but they really wanted to make you know that he's surrounded by just terrible people. I mean, I I think that other than his brother, I guess. Well, right, but well, I don't know because I, I mean, I don't know that he's surrounded by terrible people because nobody else is ter- like that's terrible. true. Tilda Swinton's character is fine. The girl that he's kind of sort of dating, uh, Amelia, she's fine. It's really like his agent is a douche and you know maybe it's supposed to make us feel like this dude doesn't have a care in the world because his life is like just this huge success or something i don't know maybe he's just supposed to be an asshole but he's pretty one-dimensional yeah uh yeah and i don't really know what the point of his character was in the movie he didn't really add anything to it for me I think it's just supposed to keep pushing the sense of urgency on charlie to get the script done because ron's the uh, his character's name is marty uh is the one who's like hey like valerie is waiting on the script man like what can you give me can you give me something by monday and like he kind of like calls a couple of times like when he's in new york and stuff it's supposed to keep that clock moving on charlie so that like we as the audience know like he's this is a real job he's got to get this done this isn't just some project that can take 10 years this isn't an avatar movie okay right um yeah, so then I have okay, so something we haven't really covered is his brother. We I guess you talked about it briefly, um, but he was uh he's he wants to be a screenwriter also. He's kind of down on his luck, but he decides he's gonna be a screenwriter and he's gonna take this seminar in New York or something like that. Uh from he, this, ta- he yeah. takes it in, in LA, but the guy goes all around the country doing it. Gotcha. Yeah, he wants to go to the seminar, and the whole time Charlie's like don't go to the seminar. This is the stupidest shit I've ever heard. Blah, blah, blah. And his brother is throughout this movie describing the movie that he's writing. And it's just the tropiest, it is. Uh, you know, like screenwriter's nightmare. It reminded me of, did you ever see the John Cusack movie Identity? No. It reminded me of Identity for those yeah. out there. who might Basically, like the plot that you get is that he's, uh, that there's a cop. And a woman 
and something else and they're like basically it's like five characters and they're all played by the same person or they're all the same person played by different people it's like different personalities within this movie and he talks about like okay the big symbolism in the movie is going to be a mirror and a broken mirror and it's like you know that's a super tropey thing in movies like that Mm -hmm. um he talks about how he's going to add a chase scene and charlie's (laughs) like how does that make any sense you can't have you have all these people are the same person you can't have a person chase himself (laughs) you know and like he's just pointing out all the terrible flaws with this idea but i think Um, it's it's such a great critique though on the film industry because at the same time while yes we can sit here and say these are really tropey concepts but at the same time they do make money yeah Right. And eventually <laughs> later in the movie, the agent reads the script and he's like, this is a brilliant script. I'm going to make so much money on this script. And it just breaks Charlie's heart. But then he starts realizing, well, maybe there's something to that. Anyway, that's kind of jumping ahead. But yeah, I, I did have a note saying his twin is writing the tropiest movie ever. But I think and, like, that's uh, the thing. Like they're on opposite ends of that spectrum, right? Charlie is the most pretentious of the screenwriters. And Donald yeah. is like, you know, the. Michael he just thinks Bay. everything's cool. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and so we get another flashback to uh, Susan with the guy again, with uh, La Roche, La Roche again. Yes. Um, and apparently now he has a porn website. Yeah. So at this point, we start to realize, we start learning that he has bounced around from idea to idea over time. Yeah, he gets like obsessed with a thing and does it for a while and then gets bored with it. And this is a theme throughout the movie because Susan writes in her i don't know if it's in her article or the book but he she writes that uh you know she wishes she could have that excitement for something mm-hmm. like he has but then she's starting to realize that well he has that excitement and then loses it immediately and goes to something else gets excited about that and then moves on you know just constantly moving on um so that's a theme throughout the movie but yeah at this point he's switched to porn like yep he has a porn website and this is in 2002 so the internet was still i mean probably it's arguably still today in its infancy but uh it was really in its infancy then uh and porn websites you know were much different (laughs) and it was it was much easier to i imagine to have a porn website gain traction because yeah maybe yeah in 2002 uh we were using net zero anybody remember net zero the free internet that was what we had because we america online uh, this was after after AOL. AOL was the 90s. AOL's still around, so it's, there's us, no after AOL. The, there is no after <laughs> AOL. <laughs> the world will end before AOL goes away. Uh, okay, so then my next note is more Nick Cage masturbation. Oh, God, so much. So much. Yeah. It, it, does his brother catch him at one point? It looks like his brother catches him at one point, but they just No, but I think he comes it. in like... I think he covers himself up. It's kind of ambiguous as to whether he actually saw anything. Okay. But yeah, yeah then they're like having a conversation. It's really uncomfortable. Very. And then my next note is technology versus horse. Technology versus horse. Yeah, there was a line discussion about... Discussion that somebody was having. Yeah. I, I don't remember, remember the line now. <laughs> but it's another thing about like evolution and adaptation, you know, just another mm-hmm. example of how I, I think... Well, if I remember... This... It was from the seminar, Donald learning all this stuff from the seminar, because the seminar is very much about like, you know, the archetypes and the the styles and the parts of a story, right? The very basics of, of writing. And I think that was where this was coming from, was like one of his ideas in the story is going to be 
machine versus i think he was trying to say like technology versus nature but it comes out as machine versus horse. yeah it was weird <laughs> so like then Donald. then we get another yeah i can tell then we get another flashback well we don't really know actually if it's flashbacks at this point because at a certain point the movie catches up with itself right. but uh we get another scene where it jumps to uh susan and laroche and they're in the swamp and he's finally taking her to try and see the ghost orchid right and they get lost in the swamp and that was my note lost in the swamp i think as far as timeline is concerned that everything between susan and laroche is in the past until new york until new york okay Until 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 the Kaufmans are in New York and they're spying on her with the binoculars gotcha. and then follow her down to Florida or whatever. I think at that point, that's when everything is caught up. Prior to that, it's like a five-year time jump that they're slowly moving to the present. Yeah. So uh, that's fair. It could be. Um, my next note is he is so awkward. I don't really know what that was in reference to, but yes, Charlie was very awkward. Um, so the, my next note is about when uh charlie brings donald's script to the agent the agent actually calls donald's script the smartest script all year which uh you know that is also kind of making fun of the whole like it's a critique of hollywood as a whole Mm -hmm. because it's not it's not a smart script at all it's really like it's to make dumb people feel smart which there's a lot of movies like that well that's the thing right like what when you say smart script do you mean like this is going to make a successful movie? That right. means something different than say the script for John Malkovich, which is a very complex, high, you know, high mind meta philosophical. Right, your average concept. movie goer would probably not really love that movie. Right, They'd but probably at the go, same what time, the hell was that? Right, Fur- Furious Seven makes a billion dollars. Was that a smart script? Well, it was a very successful film. Maybe that was smart. I don't know. See, when I think of smart script versus smart versus a script that's made made to make people feel smart is like i think of like you said being john malkovich would be a good one for an actual smart movie but then like something like donnie darko which is a movie i like don't get me wrong but i feel like everybody that says they like donnie darko they don't actually know what it's about and i don't know what it's actually about i don't and i'm pretty sure the people that made the movie if that they've been interviewed and said we have no idea what it's about it's up to interpretation <laughs> so you know it's that's a movie that makes I don't want to say all dumb people. Like it makes people feel smarter than they actually are. It doesn't mean you're dumb, but you know, that's, I think there's two different things there. A lot of movies are made that way to make somebody who's not necessarily the smartest person feel smart while they're watching it. Well, yeah, if there's and, a mystery involved and people can guess the twist or something like sure. that, it makes them feel like, Oh, I figured like it the out. Knives out movies. You know, that's yeah. a good feeling. Um, sure. versus like but then at the same time like that's why some movies get slammed like that for taking that away from the audience by just coming up with something the audience couldn't possibly have been aware of to be like oh we got but you see, the him calling donald's script the smartest all year for me meant more like it was like the donnie darko where it's yeah. you know people because the way he's describing the movie throughout the whole you know throughout this whole movie makes it seem like he's trying to make something smart and deep that's probably not going to end up being that smart and deep but that's fair anyway i don't want to spend too much time on that uh anyway uh charlie ends up going to the seminar 
I'm sorry. That I was, was going to take us down a tangent. I'm not going to that do he criti- That he criticized. The, criti- the seminar he told his brother not to go to because it was stupid. He ends well, up going to the seminar. Yeah, because he, so he goes, his brother talks him into going to New York to meet with Susan. Because right. he was he was supposed to have a chance to meet with her in L.A. He chickened out. And Donald talks him into going to meet her because Charlie is stuck. Right. So that's why just real quick, like that's why he's in New York to begin with is to meet Susan, which he chickens right. out again. Yeah. He sees her. <laughs> she gets in the same elevator uh, at, at the where she works and he starts to try and say something to her, but she leaves the elevator and he doesn't say anything. So then, yeah, he goes to the seminar that happens to be in the town at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the guy uh, that was doing the seminar giving the seminar robert mckee yeah one of the one of the big things he says is talking about never use voiceover never use voiceover i laughed so hard at that so Uh, this is so great so this is brian cox playing the character i love brian cox he's wonderful uh mckee is a real person that this character is based off of of course and so it's a little exaggerated from his actual teachings supposedly but man it's such a great scene that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie especially after charlie asks his question and yeah. Brian gets to kind of do his monologue. Ah, oh, it was really kiss. good. Like, yeah, that. Well, this point, I said Nick is really good in this. I mean, I realized that before, but I think at this point, I was, when his in his response to basically asked a question about like, what if you're making a movie that doesn't have conflict? Yes, and your characters and, don't grow. And your characters don't grow, and nothing the, happens. Yeah, the guy giving the seminar tells him that, that would be the most horseshit, stupid ass movie he's ever heard of. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to read that. Nobody wants to make that. You know, it, it, it's so yeah. He's he rips rips him apart. Well, it's this big turning point because Charlie says, like, you know, like the real world. He because because he has kept himself so locked in. He, has he doesn't done, know what the real world is. Th- right in his his life, he's done nothing, so he thinks nothing happens in the real world. And this is where McKee like basically says that he's nuts. Things are happening every day. Every day there are people who risk their lives to save a stranger. There are people who get murdered. There are people who are, you know, are born, people who lose their jobs. Like something is happening all the time. And it was just such a great monologue. I love that. It was, it was really good. Um, Yeah. Then (laughs) my next note is Nick Cage hotel karaoke. So happy together. (laughs) So that's a thing that's a thing um yeah so him and his brother get together and uh they start investigating (laughs) they're talking about this like how they should proceed with the script he asks his brother for advice to read the scripts which is a a huge turning point yeah yeah it's a big turning point because his brother has sold the his script at this point yes and this is where charlie like he has to set his ego aside and be like i need i need help Uh, this isn't working anymore and his brother and, reads the script and said, and, you know, he's he says it's missing something. Um, and Charlie is like, well, what is it? What is it? You know, he's it's he's gone from somebody that was thought very little of his brother's writing ability to now somebody who needs needs to get, you know, whatever that is from his brother because his brother has it and he does not. And to and, Donald's credit, he is always humble and thankful and honored to help his brother. He's a really good character. Like, he's yeah. just, yeah, not, you know, Nick Cage plays a lot of dickheads in these movies, but Donald is just a really wholesome character throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so 
they're talking about it and he's you know they're trying to figure out the ending um and his brother says that they're like reading through her article and the book and her, his brother's like oh he runs a porn site now okay i need to investigate that <laughs> and so his brother goes to the computer and starts looking up the porn site and right on the homepage of the porn site is uh susan topless and so uh yeah she did porn for la roche and it's around this time that you find out it it goes over back to susan and you you find out that uh that the ghost lily is a drug and that they're manufacturing a drug and apparently uh la roche is the only one that can do it the only white person that can do it right like the native he, he specifies tribe, but, uh, that yeah quite quite frequently um then there's a sex scene without nick I don't remember which sex scene that was at LaRoche and Susan. I'm trying to remember. I mean, he, not to skip ahead, but I'm not sure if this is the part you're talking about. He kind of like catches them having sex. I don't know. I after don't think they so. tailor down the Florida. I don't, um, honestly, it could be. It's just as interesting that there's a sex scene without Nick because most of the time when he's in the movie, he's in the sex scenes. And he does get like three of them, to be fair, all other, you know, fantasies in his head. They are. Um, three years later, Florida Van Chase is my next note. Yeah, so this is where, so that you know, they were in New York and they find out through their binoculars that Susan is going down to Florida. And so they think she's going to meet with LaRoche again. And Donald's convinced that there's something going on here between them. He even interviews Susan in place of Charlie because Charlie still doesn't have the guts to do it. And so they go down, they basically tail her down to Florida and follow. She gets in the van with LaRoche and they follow uh, them back to LaRoche's place. Well, where he's got the heart of it, where he's got all the, the lilies set up and he's like producing the drug. And this is where like this is where the movie gets real. Like everything changes right now. Yeah. Right. And she's she's addicted to the drug. It has show, it showed her earlier that he sent her a package of the drug to her hotel or wherever she was staying and mm-hmm. that she like stayed up all night on the phone talking to him mm-hmm. um, and, you know, using this drug and they like make dial tones together over the phone, which That's... was weird. It was a very weird scene. Only well, Street could make that scene interesting. Like, right. <laughs> um. So that yeah, then I have a note about that how they did a great job stitching Nick's together. Um mm-hmm. yeah. And then hostage situation because so Charlie again, evolution or an adaptation of his character, evolution of his character, he uh decides to be the one to go in and spy on whatever's happening. And uh he gets caught, of course. And they're trying to figure out what to do with them, Susan and LaRoche. And the, and she's like, she's high, and he's high. But and I love when like, he finds out that he's the writer for the movie. He's like, oh, that's so great. It's nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah, he's like completely naked. And she's so, he, she, he's like, who is he? And she's like, oh, he's, he's the screenwriter. Chris and then Cooper, he's like, man. completely changes his tone about how great he is. Yeah, he's like butt naked. He's just standing there. Anyway, then she's like, well, we have to kill him. And he's like, he doesn't want to do it. He's like, I'm not a killer. No. Yeah, he's he's like I'm not going to kill him, and she's like, well, he's going to ruin my career, and he's seen this, he's seen the drugs, you know, he's seen everything, um, yeah, and so like the next scene 
you see him driving the car and she's got a gun pointed at him, which apparently she had a gun. I mean, I don't know. It's never established that she carries a gun or like has knowledge of guns or anything, but she has a gun pointed at him while he's driving and they're taking him out to the swamp. It's it's not a stretch to me though, that LaRoche would have a couple of guns given like that. He spends so much time around like alligators and then swamps and stuff. Like I, I guess fine. so he just gave her a gun even though he didn't want to kill the guy well he goes know. along it with weird. it and he's got That's the rifle true. like he doesn't want to do it but he also like wants to like support her i guess for lack of a better word right so she starts getting out of the car and it's revealed that donald is in the back seat hiding under some blankets and when she gets out of the car I he laughed. like opens opens the door and smashes smashes her with the door knocks the gun out of her hand and then him and his brother both start running into the swamp this is the same swamp where they got lo- that susan and laroche got lost before mm-hmm. um and so yeah my next note was i did not have twin nick cages running through the swamp of my bingo card but it's uh, so great. It's like his at night swamp chase. Like we didn't even get that yeah. in his New Orleans movies. And at some point she's like, I can hear him breathing. And they're like questioning who the other guy is. They don't really know at this point. Right. Cause it was, it was dark. So they don't, they don't know that Charlie has a twin. Yeah. Right. So they don't have no idea who the second person is, which is just really fun. So at this point I had a theory and maybe it's fucking stupid or crazy. You can tell me, Ooh. but I feel like, so when they were in New York, and his brother, uh, you know, they're talking about the ending to this movie and what they need to do. This felt to me like the ending that his brother would have written because, you know, there's a car chase, gunshots, murder, an alligator eating somebody, all these things. So this felt to me like it was, I don't know how it fits in, but it did feel to me because this is a totally different tone than the entire rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. It goes off the rails at this point, feels like a totally different movie. Not in a bad way necessarily, but so here's my th- here's here's how my theory ties into that. Everything that happens after they leave the hotel room never happened. Right, it was just the ending that the brother wrote. Exactly, his right, his yeah. brother comes to New York, right, and helps him fix up the script. Because we even get that at the end, at the very very end of the movie, he's still writing the movie in that final scene. Right, right. That's not actually charlie that's the character charlie the voiceover is the real charlie so everything that happens the spying on susan being able to read her ticket information off that computer from across the street going down the florida none of that happens that's all in the script my next note is this is the added conflict and character growth that his script they said his script needed exactly um so then we get the next morning they've stayed out in the swamp all night they do have a touching and, moment, the two of them. Yeah, they have a little conversation that's very touching where he tells his brother that he respects him and stuff like that. It's nice, it's a nice brother scene. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, the next morning they're like they see their car on the road, but then they don't see the van immediately. So they start walking up to the car and they notice that uh LaRoche is sleeping against a guardrail across the street with a rifle slung over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then they hear um Susan down the road with the van and she sees them and she uh wakes up laroche and laroche like gets startled and fires a shot oh wait was that that no this is yeah 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 this was that he gets startled yeah. and fires a shot from his rifle and it hits donald in the arm yeah in the arm and so uh 
they, do they is it then that they run out into the swamp? No, or no, was they, the car chase right that before that. Yeah, it was the car chase first. No, I guess you're right. No, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they run into the car because it's it's just Charlie for the the last swamp bit. So yeah, they right. get they get into the car and it's a car chase. Yeah, their car chase and then the state true or the state trooper, the park ranger comes over this hill or blind turn or whatever in his truck and slams into the side of the car. It is very reminiscent of LaRoche's accident where his brother gets, Donald gets slung out of the car and is basically dying on the pavement. And you get this scene where they sing, I think they sing uh, so long, so happy together, mm-hmm. or he sings so happy together to him. And then uh, LaRoche and Susan show up again and chase him out into the swamp. And Charlie gets away. You can see some of the like the the the, how the script changes here. You can see some of these tropey things, right? Like it's like when when they're driving down the road really fast. You know, Charlie keeps looking over at Donald, and my thought in my head, I'm like, "Don't do that. You're going to hit something. Don't do that." (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Like definitely more tropey things have start to happen, and like this death scene with Donald is like very long, considering they were just being chased by somebody. You know what I mean? It's like an extended scene. Anyway, Donald dies. Uh, Charlie get, has gets chased into the swamp by these two, and he sees some gators in the swamp, so he stops, and he, you can tell he's really conflicted about whether he wants to try and keep running and try his luck with the gators, or if he's going to stand there and try his luck with uh, the people with guns. And so uh, Susan convinces LaRoche to kill Charlie, but right as he's getting ready to pull the trigger, a gator comes out and just mangles the shit out of him. And then, uh, you know, Susan is so distraught and screaming about how, you know, Charlie's ruined their life and ruined everything and blah, 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 and crying. And she calls him a name and he calls her a name back. (laughs) And uh, yeah, well, I also had in here Nick Cage dies in the end because that's technically true. He does one of them does does die in the end, which is something if you haven't listened to all our other episodes, that's for pretty frequent in Nick Cage movie. He dies a lot. He dies a lot in the end of these movies. Um, uh, so now my next note is he kissed her character growth. Oh, right. So, yeah. So, you know, the paramedics show up and all those types of things. He tells his mom, yada, yada, yada. Now he's home. Yes. He's a, ch- he's a changed man. He finally kisses uh, Amelia. Even though she she's has with a, somebody now. She has a boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, um, Wrecker. <laughs> and then my last note is imagine me and you i guess he sings that either he sings that song again or it plays one of the i think two. it I just can't plays remember. i think it plays. yeah and he's doing another voiceover even though the, the script just criticized that he actually acknowledges it and he says oh they said no voiceover oh well screw that this this is it's perfect for this moment or something he's talking right. about how the movie ends as the movie's ending mm-hmm. and yeah that's drive, kind of the end of it drives off into the sunset with his yeah he's got he's got a date with his lady Yep. And that's it. That's, that's it. the movie. Yeah, Two man. hours long. It's wild. It is a wild movie. I um I find it fascinating. I think I think you're absolutely right, right? I think from from the moment Donald enters that apartment and agrees to help or the apartment, the hotel room, and ho- offers to help with the script, everything after that is just the new version of the script. Right. You know, it's so great. I love it. Um, you know, my uh I watched this with my girlfriend and she was like, so nothing happened to Susan. Like what was, and I was like, that's, it's not, that's not part of the story. You know, right. something happened. She either got caught there, or she didn't. 
yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions at the end of the story, but they're not questions that necessarily need answers to complete the story. So, right. you know, I was fine with it, but uh, she had a little more trouble with that than I did. Understandably, <laughs> you know, it's this movie is not like something that everybody's going to love. But uh, yeah, it was something for sure. It it was really a change of pace to also watch Nick playing as Donald, like one of the better people in the film, because it turns out that like, you know, Susan, this, this fictional version of her is a terrible person, right? She's, she's cheating on her husband and she's doing drugs and she wants to kill this guy for finding out about it. Right. And LaRoche is kind of like, not a snake oil salesman per se, because he does deliver on what he says he's going to do, but he's just kind of, you know, maybe a little wishy-washy, not really consistent. He's doing, you know, some shady stuff that's, it's illegal, but he's doing it for the right reasons, but he's going to profit off of it. And he's kind of exploiting native Americans to do it. Right. Right. Uh, And Charlie, of course, is not a very good person. Uh, He gets, arguably he gets better as, as it goes on, but yeah, he still kisses Amelia when he knows that she's in another relationship. He could have just said something like, you know, Hey, we should go out. He could have said that. Um, but I think at this point, we've all gotten the vibe how much you love Donald, Derek. We got I do. it. I love Donald. We got to score Justice this movie. for Donald. We got to score this movie. Okay. All right. Yeah. So let's do that. So here's what we do. Every movie we score on a 20 point scale, zero low, 20 high on overall quality and then overall caginess. Um, and so I'll, I'll kick things off because I have strong feelings about the quality of this movie. Sure. I I love this movie. I really thought it was fantastic. Um, this is definitely my kind of story, my kind of film. Was this and, your favorite movie that we've watched so far on this podcast? Man, it is really hard to say no to that. Uh, it, arguably, that like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is brilliant. It's one of the greatest animated movies ever made. No question. Uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is also brilliant and a lot of fun. But I think this this is on just a slightly different level for me. And so I'm actually going to give it a 19. Jeez. Okay. Well, I gave, I gave Spider-Man an 18 and Unbearable Weight a 17. So yeah. I'm going to give this one higher, a 19. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm leaving a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, yeah, you, know, you got to leave room for pig. That's right. <laughs> right <laughs> that's right uh but 19 for adaptation okay wow um where did i put uh leaving las vegas leaving las vegas you gave that a 17 yeah i think i think i'm on the same note with this movie as i did with leaving las vegas like it was leaving las vegas was a brilliant movie not one that i want to watch over and over again but sure, yeah. it was brilliant this movie, I don't know if I'd call it brilliant. I mean, I think it was trying to be brilliant. It was pretty enjoyable. Uh, but the whole meta thing doesn't mean as much to me as it does to you. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to score it the same as I did with Leaving Las Vegas. Okay, 17? 17, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're not, we're not that far off. No, know? I mean, it's definitely in the upper echelon of uh, of Nick Cage movies as far as quality goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just for perspective, I mean, you gave uh, Spider-Man 17 as well. So those are your top yeah, three I think ties that's, right now. I think that's fair. Okay. All right. Now we got to do caginess. 
And this is this one I'm struggling a little bit because there are some moments that might qualify as Cajunus. He's so different in both of these roles from what we normally see in, in all the good ways. I mean, he's great. Both Charlie and Donald are fantastically performed. Right. So, Ryan, what's your Cajunus level here? So I think off of our general, the way we've been scoring these movies for Cajunus, it's pretty low. Um he, it's not to say that he didn't do a good job because Cajunus is not a measure of how good of an actor he was in this movie because right. that would be much higher for like 90% of the movies that we review if that was the case. Agreed. It's it's a measure of like the meme cage, the 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 internet cage that we all know and love, the, the loud yelling cage, the face making <laughs> cage. And we didn't really get a lot of that in this movie, which is totally fine. I think it would have been out of place in this movie. There was a scene early on I think when he's talking to Tilda, I don't remember, but I know me and my girlfriend looked at each other when it happened because we got really excited and then it didn't go anywhere. But he started to like ramp up. Mm -hmm. Um, But outside of that, I don't really see a lot of caginess other than he had a few lines that were just kind of ridiculous. But that, you know, is what it is. So I'm going to put this at a five. A five? Yeah. They're just, it was less cagey than leaving Las Vegas. Well, what I give that one for KG? Uh, that that we gave a pretty high caginess factor. Oh yeah, because there was some pretty big scenes for that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. At, at a five, I mean, you're putting it on par. It would with, be above Joe. Uh, it would be above Joe and KG. Yeah, I mean, we gave Joe a one. Yeah, on so I mean, that's as str- like straight as an. I arrow. think you do have to take the fact that he's playing two different characters into account a little mm-hmm. bit. That's why I'm giving it a little more credit than I normally would for the amount of caginess in the movie. But where are you at? So I'm not much higher than that. I was kind of going back and forth between a six and a seven um, because I just, you know, because of the the two characters and there's, there's some stuff, especially in Donald and his facial expressions and things like that, that are a little, a little cagey, but you're right. There's not like these big moments, meme moments um, that you're, you're normally seeing in some of his other outrageous stuff. Um, But I I think I'm going to give it a seven because of, the dual roles and the fact that they both do some cagey things. And if that had all been one character, I think that would have bumped it up for us. Sure. So I'm going to give it a seven. Sounds good. So that gives us a quality rating of an 18 and a cage rating, caginess rating of six. So this is going to be firmly in the column with low caginess, high quality with a couple other movies. Uh, Joe, Joe. Joe would be a big one. Joe yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, but now we got to figure out what movie is going to replace adaptation on our wheel of cage and the movie that's joining the wheel will be ooh eight millimeter okay that's what i've always wanted to see as well so eight millimeter joins the wheel to find out what nicholas cage movie we're going to talk about next go ahead and head over to comingofcage.com and watch the wheel of cage next week as we spin to pick episode 26 by the way which will also be our one year anniversary episode so you won't want to miss that uh ryan anything else you want to talk about for adaptation no we covered everything we covered i know everything. derek derek you could have talked about this movie for another hour without trouble i probably um, could have yeah yeah that is true that's good I'm, I'm happy that you enjoyed it so much you're discovering a lot of movies throughout this podcast maybe yes. we could do a little quick recap next next podcast of all Ooh. the movies that you found that you never saw that you really enjoyed significantly more than you thought you would that's a fun idea. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Uh, before we go, I'm just going to plug our merch store real quick, which is having a sale May 25 through 29. 
We will have a sale up to 35% off items in our merch store. Go to comingofcage.com to find our link. You can get t-shirts like the one I'm wearing now. It's got our, our Con Air inspired Nick Cage. We've got, you know, magnets and buttons and stickers. And Ryan's wearing one that's inspired by Vampire's Kiss. So, you know, go ahead and check that out. Comingofcage.com for all of our links. You can watch the show on YouTube. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Spotify, you name it. Thank you so much for listening as we are closing out our first year of the show. Ryan, this has been a lot of fun, man. So far, so good. So far, so good. Thanks for listening, everybody. beefy adrian brody this is not your normal oscar material right except for the fact that it has meryl streep in it that makes it oscar material (laughs) right because she's been nominated like 27 times (laughs) including this movie this movie uh that's what makes this movie oscar bait is just putting meryl streep in it immediately it's up for consideration